What's up, everyone? I'm Joe Pompliano, and this is The Joe Pomp Show. Today's podcast is with Steve Pagluca. Steve is the former co-chairman of Bain Capital, a private equity firm with $165 billion in assets under management. And he's the current owner of the Boston Celtics and Atalanta BC in Syria. We discussed the negotiation process behind buying an NBA team, how he values the world's most prominent sports assets, the future of media rights deals, and much more. I really enjoyed this conversation with Steve, and I think you're going to learn a lot. So let's get right into it. All right, Steve, first and foremost, thank you so much for doing this. We chatted a few weeks ago and I had a blast. So I was excited when you agreed to do the podcast. So first off, thanks for coming. I appreciate it. It's great to be here. Awesome. I think the most logical place to start is with sports in general, right? You've invested in a bunch of different sports assets and properties over the last few years, last few decades, actually, between the Celtics, Atalanta, and a few different properties from there. Let's talk a little bit about why you're so interested in sports and where you think the value is. Well, I think it starts way back when I grew up in Boston and New Jersey and then back to Boston. And I had always been active in baseball, football, you know, basketball myself and went to Duke and, and was able to play at Duke, actually, although I was the worst player in the worst Duke team in the history of the university. And even, even I, people tell me even when I was younger, I didn't really have any money. I don't know why I thought about it, but I, I wanted to get involved somehow with, with sports. And probably I realized at Duke that it wasn't going to be in the NBA, so I became an accounting major. The only way I'd probably, probably get into that is just to go out there and, and try to earn a living. So I was started with interest in football, and I looked at several football opportunities in the, I would say, uh, you know, late 90s period. And then fortunately, Rick Grosbeck called me and said he'd love me to partner with him to buy the Celtics. And I was a huge Celtics and basketball fan and, and having living in Boston. And so I thought I found that incredibly exciting. And so we jumped in and that was about 20 years ago. And it's been an incredible, you know, labor of love. So you buy the Celtics, you partner with Grossbeck on buying the Celtics for, I think it was $360 million in 2002. What is buying a team like, especially back then, right? Like we've heard stories. I think there's a famous story that's gone around the last couple of years of Ryan Smith when he bought the Utah Jazz. I don't know if you've heard this one. He says that he was negotiating with the family to buy the team. And he just wanted the team, right? He grew up in the area and wanted to buy it, didn't really care what the price was. So he pulled up his phone, searched the Forbes valuation and said, this is what it's worth. This is what I'll pay. And that was basically the end of it. What was that negotiation like? Was there a negotiation? How did you go about buying the team? Well, at the time, it was a record price. And Wick had negotiated with the, the owner, Paul Gaston, to pay a record price. So at the time, it was, it, I, unfortunately, the headline in the Boston Globe when we announced it which didn't help us at all because we were putting together an investor group at the time that was a venture capitalist pay record price for team. My heart dropped when I saw that. I said, thank you to the Globe again. Thank you to the Globe. It wasn't like iconic franchise. It was a venture capitalist pay record price for team. And actually a little bit like the Ryan Smith story, when we were in the car going over for the press announcement, this was probably one of the only sports deals ever to have zero leaks until we set up the press meeting and even they didn't know what it, what it was about. So we I think stunned and I thought we'd go over to the Celtics facility, which was really close to our homes. We lived in Weston. I thought there'd be two or three reporters there. We walked in and there was like hundreds of reporters and television cameras and no one had, had known about this at all. And so that people were stunned and even the coach Jim O'Brien was sitting up at the balcony and he was kind of glaring at us because they had not told him that the team had been sold. So unannounced, the price had been set and we put together a fantastic investor consortium. At the time, I think 26, the NBA teams were losing money 
and the Celtics were kind of break even. So to pay three sixty million for something with break even, that was new to me since I was in the private equity, you know, business and and that was probably almost an infinite multiple of, of earnings. They made a little money, but they needed a lot of investment as well. What was the thesis back then, right? Like now it seems obvious, but at the time, given everything that you're saying, that most teams were losing money and the Celtics were break even, you guys are paying a record price for a franchise. Like what was the thesis to investors as you're out raising capital? Well, the thesis was that at the time, Boston hadn't won a championship in 16 years, which was a very unusual for Boston and certainly the Celtics. We felt like we, we had a business plan that basically said we could improve the fan experience, we could improve game attendance, and we thought there'd be upside from you know playoffs and television revenues would follow. Basically, we had three key directives. One was to build a championship team. The second was to kind of have more connectivity and engagement and make it a better fan experience. And the third was to really develop a incredible community asset. We felt like as the franchise could really do a lot of good in the community and there'd be a virtuous circle where if you did good in the community, you'd get more fans and more engagement and it would all work together. So I think I think they were selling maybe 16,000 tickets a night back then with a capacity of 19.5. So basically improving ticket sales, we thought we could improve the sponsorships dramatically and that, that was basically the business plan. And we didn't tell investors that this is a Bain Capital type deal that's going to make 20% rate of returns. We said, we want to do this as a community asset and we would hope we would never have capital calls. And thank goodness we've never had a capital call. Obviously, the dynamics that happened in the last 20 years in sports leagues, under which leadership we've improved the Celtics dramatically, but obviously the league and the national contracts and everything that Adam Silver and David Stern have done and the CBA with the players, where it's really a partnership now as a 50-50 partnership has given us great labor stability. So all those dynamics put together has increased the value of the Celtics and sports franchises in general a lot. Yeah. So one of the things I'm curious about from your perspective is the idea that teams don't need to be good to be valuable, right? People talk about this in sports all the time. You have other assets like, you know, maybe the Knicks are a good example or someone like that, right? That has a major market behind them, but they don't win a lot. And the valuations continue to rise and rise and rise year after year. The Celtics are in like this sort of weird position, I would call it, where you guys are in a major market, big city. And you've been really good over the last two decades, right? You won the championship in 2008. You have a winning record over the last 20 years. What part does that play in the overall, one, valuation of the team, but just the success of the team in general? I think it plays an important role in really differentiating you from maybe the classic Forbes valuation, because what it does is it drives sponsorship revenues. It drives, you know, ticket revenues. It drives playoff revenues and playoffs. Playoffs are very lucrative. You know, the playoff gates are very large in most major markets right now. And then it also just builds, which we had at the Celtics, and I think that's why it's, it's the iconic franchise. It builds kind of a lifelong positive feeling with fans. And Boston's a unique market in that we have that with the Patriots, the Red Sox, the Bruins, and the Celtics, all a long time championship type teams that are part of the fabric of the community. And so it takes a long time to build that. And, you know, that's been built over the last 40 or 50 years. And then us continuing that track and getting a championship and having a really great team the last 20 years has, has built upon that. So we are now have fans of Boston, but we also have global fans. And that's kind of a new thing in the last 20 years. And having a championship team and having Garnett, Paul Pierce, and Ray Allen become basically international because you have now streaming and coverage from overseas and the NBA set up offices in Europe and China. And we even have a league in Africa going right now. It's changed the whole you know, landscape of, of sports. So creating that winning, just think about Manchester United. 
it's become a global franchise with hundreds of millions of fans, if not billions of fans. Yeah, it's super interesting dynamic. And do you have any great, I, I assume you have a bunch of them, but any good memories or stories from, we'll call it like the mid-2000s? You guys put together what has become an iconic team with Garnett, Pierce, and Allen, and then you guys win the NBA championship in 2008. I have to imagine that was just an amazing time to not only be in the city of Boston, but obviously be an owner of the team too. It was incredible because we named the base company that did the acquisition Banner 17, which was aggressive because we had won 16. We haven't changed the name. We have to change it to Banner 18, I guess now. But our whole focus was to build the championship team. And interestingly enough, I, I saw a study that the Boston Globe had done that said if new owners of teams, if they didn't win in the first five years, they almost never won at the time. Now, that may have changed right now because some teams that haven't won a long time won. But at the time, it seemed like there was a shot clock. If you didn't turn it around in five years, you know, it might be a long, long slog. So we actually won in the fifth year. We, we did the acquisition in 2003. We won in 2008. But it was great for the city and uplifting. Having Garnett, who was kind of a classic Celtics-type player, unselfish, focused, and a leader, you know, kind of put icing on the cake. And Doc Rivers, also incredibly charismatic coach. Doc brought in the concept of Ubuntu. I don't know if you heard of the concept of Ubuntu. That was our rallying cry during the whole season. Ubuntu is an African saying that, that says, you're only here because of others who have helped you to get where you are today. And so you need to be cognizant that you've only been successful because many have come before you and helped you be successful and you need to do the same thing. And, and so the players before every game would be in the back and just have the rally cry of Ubuntu. So they really played together. All three of those players set an example where their previous scoring totals had gone down, but between the three of them, you know, we won a record amount of games. And so it was, it was really magical. That's awesome. I love that. I had never heard that before. By the way, Doc Rivers was amazing. He also, when we played LA that year, he was really gunning for the championship. And he told the team after the game that he had put thousands of dollars of cash in the, you know, the locker room had those kind of ceilings you could display. So he, he snuck up there and he put cash in the ceiling. He said, we're going to come back here and get the cash, you know, to win the championship. Ah, so most people have probably heard the story recently of, I think it was Ty Lue who did that with the Lakers. Or no, that was Ty Lue with the Cavs when they won LeBron's championship in 2016, 2017, whatever it was. But it was Doc Rivers who did it first. I didn't know that. Uh, yeah, I think Doc Rivers pioneered that. Ty probably <laughs> learned from him. Yeah, I love that. That's awesome. I'll have to talk to Ty next time I see him. I haven't heard that story. Yeah, supposedly when they went to Golden State, they had to go back to Cleveland for game six. And he said, put the money up. He took it from everyone in the locker room, supposedly, put it in the ceiling and said, we're coming back for it. And all the players joked later on that they never saw their money back, <laughs> right? Like it was like <laughs> someone after game seven just just picked it up and kept it, I guess. But that's great. Yeah, I've never tracked where that 2008 money went. I have to, I have to talk to Doc next time I see him. Yeah, someone's going to have to follow up on that. All right, everyone, quick interruption from today's episode to talk about the sponsor of this podcast, ButcherBox. I've been ordering from ButcherBox for a few years now, and it's the single best solution I've found to save time while guaranteeing the quality of your food. Everyone probably knows what ButcherBox is, but they deliver 100% grass-fed, grass-finished beef, free-range organic chicken, humanely raised pork, and wild-caught seafood directly to your doorstep. It's literally that easy, and it tastes incredible. So ditch the butcher lines today and guarantee the freshness of your meat with ButcherBox. And here's the best part. If you sign up today, ButcherBox is offering all of my listeners two pounds of ground beef for free every time they order over the next year. Let me say that again. Two pounds of ground beef every time you order over the next year, you get for free. 
So go to butcherbox.com slash Joe Pomp and use code Joe Pomp, all caps, Joe Pomp at checkout to get that discount today. I want to go back to valuations for a second. So we talked a little bit about what you bought the team for, why you thought it was valuable, how you were able to increase the value. But if you fast forward to today now, right, 2023, the Boston Celtics are valued by Forbes at $4 billion, which I would argue is relatively low to what you guys could potentially sell the franchise for based on recent sales of the Phoenix Suns and Charlotte Hornets and other teams like that. But what do you think about that valuation? Like, does it seem fair? Has it gotten ahead of itself? Do you think now is there's going to be some headwinds, tailwinds, like just your general feelings on valuations across, we'll say the NBA, but more professional sports in general? Well, you know, we took with our investors a very, very long-term approach. As I said, we didn't really do this as a private equity fund or, or thing or that. Like so actually, but it worked got, out pretty well too. It's worked out really well. It worked, it's worked out really well. Yeah. You know, we think about it more like, hopefully I'll be looking up for my grave and, you know, we'll still own the team. But I would say if you step back, what's really happened in the last 20 years in sports in general is you've now seen, when we bought the team, there was no Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, social media. There, I think maybe email was the state of the art in, in 2003, honestly. And you've seen now an explosion of social media, of streaming of the last five years, you know, the global streaming platforms where the, all these teams basically, you know, were local and some national, now they're global. So when we bought the team, you're counting fans in the hundreds of thousands. Then you started to count fans in the millions, now the 10 millions. And now with some clubs, Manchester United and Chelsea, you're getting close to billions of fans because the product is accessible, number one. Number two, the media landscape, as you know, Joe, changes every 10 years. There's bundling and unbundling and rebundling and technologies. And we've seen now a massive shift in cable cutting, customized programming, and now brand new players who want eyeballs. So Google, Apple, Facebook, they all want eyeballs you know, globally. And there's nothing better to, to attract viewers en masse than sports. Sports is kind of must-see live properties. And so that dynamic of those players going after and the popularity of, I would say, uh, basketball and football slash soccer are the two most global games. That popularity has really driven the value and revenues from television has gone up, you know, probably 10x since the inception. And it continues to go up because there are very few uh, mediums where you can aggregate that amount of eyeballs on mass things like the Super Bowl, the NBA finals, all the games, an advertiser can reach millions and billions of people. And you really can't do that with, with much other type of programming. And so it's very compelling and people have to watch it. Now you can watch any time on any device. So people in China going to work or watching, you know, Celtics games, you know, on the way there at 830 in the morning in China, which again, couldn't have happened 20 years ago. So I think the technology dynamics, the rise of the internet and social media, and then I think really astute management by David Stern, Adam Silver of the league and, and just the excitement of the game and the player stability that we've had. And the fact that now when I think back about Jordan and Larry Bird and Magic kind of turned the league around way back when. I would say when you look at it now, there are more superstar players than there's ever been at one time in the league because of the globalization. you got great players like we've just got Porzingis at the Celtics. Dirk Nowitzki is another example. Jokic, the Joker, another example. I think 15, 20% of the league is international. So the level of play and the number of stars has created a great competitive balance. And so has the structure of the league. So we've had different teams you know, winning it now. And I think this year, there's maybe 18 teams in contention. 20 teams in contention, 
maybe even more at the end of the season to be in the playoffs and, and go forward with the formats that we've had. So, yeah, so I think in summary, we have more stars than we've ever had in the NBA. That's been driven by the globalization and by the popularity of the game, both domestically and globally. And so I think there's a bright future and things like the NBA has been very, had a lot of foresight with Adam Silver. We're starting the African League now. The NBA put offices, I think, 15, 20 years ago into Europe where people thought that was crazy. But actually, we have huge European following, and I think we have over a billion dollars of revenue from international sources that you didn't have in 2003. One of the other things I want to talk about is uh, soccer or football. You've gotten more involved in that space over the last few years. I know you were involved in the bidding process for Chelsea. You ended up purchasing a different club called, how do you say it? Atalanta. Yeah, I always mess it up. Atalanta. You bought a 55% stake, I think it was, last year for you know valuing the club at $560, $570 million. Talk me through that, why you thought that club specifically was valuable, and then just the macro trends around soccer, football in general. Yeah, I see. Actually, that's, it's very interesting. You know, Atalanta is a very storied club as well. It reminded me a lot of the Celtics. So one of my partners, uh, Luca Bassi, uh, knew the ownership there, the Bracassi family, who's a fantastic family in Bergamo, right near Milan. And so they wanted to talk about maybe some capital, getting some outside capital in and, and helping to internationalize the business, you know, beyond Italy. And so Lucas set up a meeting with myself and the Bercostis and we went and saw them. And immediately I loved the stadium. I loved the setup they had and I loved how they were building the team. Their secret sauce is they had built an academy, about 450 players a year go to their academy from six years old to 18 years old and go to school. And Bergamo is one of the finest academies in Europe. And the large clubs, a lot of times focus on buying players because it's, you have to win now. They spent, you know, 12 years building this academy. And this academy has given them a competitive advantage because, for example, I think four or five of the, the under-23 Italian national team players are from the Atalanta Academy. The other 19 teams have the other 15 players, and we have two of those players are starting on the team that are you know 20 years old. And so they basically built it from the ground up, and then they're also very astute in terms of the trading market and buying excellent players, and they put in a system of, of attacking the coach Gasparini started this, you know, high press attack offense. And they basically, uh, you know, we're in the Champions League and we just came off at a very, so we had to win our last game versus Monza. We had a lot of injuries this year, but we had to win the last game, get three points to make it to the Europa League, which is really key for us in terms of our player acquisitions and our fans and all the rest. And so I just got back probably a month ago from that game and we beat Monza five to two. And that was really like a Celtics-like experience because we went on the field and the fans go crazy, and it put us into the Europa League, and we'll be starting up, you know, again, we're in the trading window right now, we start up again soon. But with that as a goal, and a goal to get back even to the Champions League, and we have a very strong team coming back, and hopefully that'll be some of the moves they make now. Gotcha. I got a few questions more about Atalanta specifically. When you go to do a deal like this, I mean, like Chelsea's another example or another team, but Atalanta specifically, like, how do you go about valuing the business, right? Do you look at the stadium? Do you look at the current revenues, obviously, things like that? What else goes through your mind to actually value the business? Well, you triangulate and you look at everything possible. So you look at their financial performance. Yep. You look at their record in terms of developing and trading players. What you like to see optimally is a club that's at least breaking even or making money before you factor in player trades. Where clubs get in trouble is if you buy players, you know, for four or 500 million and you don't sell players, that's a negative, you know, 300 million or 100 million on the cash flow. 
and that's going to overwhelm any ability of you to generate revenue on an operating basis. So our philosophy is to look at clubs that can generate revenue to at least break even and then ones that have academies and have players. So you do an evaluation, each evaluation of all the players they have both on the team and the academy, what their market values might be. You do an evaluation of their revenues in terms of television, in terms of stadium revenues and, and promotional revenues and their operating expenses. And then you have to make a judgment, you know, of what that will be going forward. In our case, always with the fact that we want to try to run the club fiscally responsibly, we, we're going to invest anything we can make in players and trying to win just like the Celtics. But it's not sustainable if you're basically pouring, uh, you know, cash in. If you're not a sovereign, that's, that's not possible to do with investors. What impact do you think that the sovereigns has had specifically on the sport of soccer? I mean, look, they're investing in essentially everything at this point that they can. But soccer specifically, I think, is where most people recognize that they've been investing a lot of money with, you know, several different teams across Europe. That obviously has it put some pressure on wages for the players because there's not a salary cap like in leagues in the United States. How do you think about that as an owner? Is it something that you worry about? Do you think you know, a structure will be put in place eventually to limit that? Is it something that you have to compete with? Just talk me through kind of how you see that going. I think it's definitely a concern, especially in the Premier League. It's rumored that the Qataris are going to buy Manchester United. And so essentially when you have a sovereign and you don't have any kind of strict salary caps or cost caps or, or taxation, they have financial fair play, which acts like some of that. But when you have that unlimited resources, you're going to really competitively advantage sovereign teams or teams that just can spend money. And if they end up with three sovereigns in the Premier League, that means effectively, you know, you have a higher correlation of winning if you spend more money for a team and you just buy players in the football system versus the draft system in the U.S. sports. And you can get relegated, which makes it even more risky. So if you look in the crystal ball in the future, if you have three sovereigns and there's four spots in the Champions League, there's going to be a high correlation between them spending money and buying players to get there. So then essentially you have 17 other teams competing for one spot. I think they're going to have to go in a direction of financial fair play or revenue sharing or mechanisms so you keep competitive balance. Because Adam Silver's done a great job with 50-50 deal with the players. And the way it's been structured now is you have many, many teams that can win and many strong teams, for example, like a Milwaukee has won it. And the whole dynamics change. You don't need to be in a big city. And therefore, everybody has a shot, which has lifted the whole value of the league, the whole value of all the programming for all the league and the whole value of the national and international contracts. So... If the Premier League specifically doesn't address that, you know, I don't know if the value of all the teams will go up, but maybe the value of the teams that, that just win all the time. And I think that's the fear. And I think they've got to look at that and figure out a system that really will enhance competitive balance. Yeah. I mean, there's an argument to be made that values will go up regardless, right? If TV rights keep getting bigger and teams are spending more and more money, but surely they would go up at a faster rate for the sovereign owned teams than they would for the, what we'll call like middle table or lower table teams in the Premier League. Yes, you might have a tale of two cities where the 80% of the value accrues to the top three or four teams. Yeah. And they don't, they have almost no chance of being relegated. And then you have the other 16, 17 teams. If you have injuries, even if you're one of the other ones and you don't have, you know, two times the amount of star players that the other ones have, you can be relegated. So it would definitely dampen the value of the other clubs if you don't have that competitive balance. And I would argue that competitive balance also enhances overall league revenues from television because your viewership goes up in each of those local areas and local markets and globally if all the games are competitive. Yeah, I would I would agree with that. This is sort of an unfair question because you've owned the Celtics for 20 years and you've owned Atlanta for two years or one year, one and a half years. But what are the main differences between the two assets? 
You know, the main differences are with the football structure, the good news is you can be a lot more entrepreneurial. And so we can scour the earth for players and buy players. And the things we do at the Celtics, I would argue the statistical analysis, which we brought in from the Celtics to Atalanta is even more valuable for Atalanta. Because if we can find a player that's worth 30 million and buy them for 10 million, that's an instant profit. And those analytics really help us figure out, does the player fit in? Will he score more You know, with us? Will he grow in value? So the biggest difference is in the European structure, there's no draft. You don't get guaranteed pl good players coming in. You have to create your own players through academies, or you have to find and buy them by scouring the world, Italy, Europe, China, Japan, Africa, to bring players in. That's the biggest difference. The similarities are, and certainly with Atalanta and the Celtics, one of the reasons I was attracted to Atalanta is it has a culture of winning a culture of success, culture of being great for the community. And you get that same feeling when you walk into the stadium in Bergamo that you do when you walk into the Boston Garden. And there's great pride in the city. And we're only, for, we're only about 45 minutes or 50 minutes from Milan. There's a train that goes directly there and highways that go directly from the airport there. So it's in a big metro area. And the other difference is we play teams like Milan, AC Milan, Inter Milan, Monza, the teams are basically like an hour or an hour and a half away. And so we're traveling an hour to play Monza, 45 minutes to play Milan or, or into Milan. The long trip for our team is really in our own league is going to Rome, which is not that, which is a very short trip compared to the U.S. So it's much more compact in the area there. But I think a lot more similarities. You've got to have a great management team. You've got to really understand statistics and strategy and how to fit the right players together to have the chemistry, you know, to win and, and beat other great teams. It's very, very competitive. Where do you think that part is specifically in Europe, but just kind of soccer and, and Syria and leagues like that in general, right? You talked about bringing some of the data and the analysis that you guys are doing on the statistical side from the Celtics over. Is that an opportunity, you believe, kind of in the structure that's currently set up over there? Yes, I think it's a big opportunity. In soccer, they're starting to do statistical analysis and they're doing some great analysis, but it's certainly not at the level of what we have in the NBA because we have 20 years history. And also, until recently, they haven't had the, the tracking systems. I don't, I don't know if people realize, but in the NBA, eight or 10 years ago, we put tracking cameras in all the stadiums so we can track every second of every game where every player is. And you can look at correlations and how much they run and where they take shots from and do heat maps and regression analysis and all those kinds of things. So that's all starting to happen in European soccer. And certainly with the values now and the fact that it's a game of inches, you know, just to, to win a championship, you have to use every edge and the teams are a lot of times even. So having even a 1% or 3% or edge by having statistical capabilities and a better strategy can help you get over the top and, and help you win championships. I love that. All right, last question, Steve. This one's kind of like sort of a silly question, but I love asking it is just like, what is a normal day for you like, right? For people that don't know, you were at Bain Capital for 30, 35 years. You were co-chairman, a couple hundred billion dollars in assets under management. You're obviously the co-owner of the Celtics and now own Atalanta too. What are you doing on like a day-to-day -day or a week-to-week -week basis? Well, I've been very fortunate. You know, my, my grandfather was a shoemaker that made $8 a week to make shoes to sell the Saks Fifth Avenue in New York. And so the, the great news is they really pushed me for education and, and forced me to get an accounting degree, which I really didn't want to do, to tell you the truth, because I thought accounting was boring. But it turns out by happenstance, it really 
later in life, it paid off because it's kind of the language you need to look at acquisitions and help build businesses. So I guess my grandfather knew something even back then, 60 years ago, the American dream, you know, to, to kind of push your children. And my, my father, I think, was the only of his siblings that went to college even. And he did that because of the GI Bill. He fought in, in World War II and Korea. So he fought twice in the front lines. And then he got a college education, I think, at 27 years old. So they pushed us, my family, into education. And that has paid off. So I've been fortunate now to have been at a place like Bain Capital, where we built a firm that's, that's it, it's like a sports team. It says we try to build businesses and we try to build them for the long-term and long-term value. That's what I love about private equity. Just like the sports situation, you build a business to last. And so a day in my life, actually, unfortunately, in my quote, retirement, I'm more busy than I was pre-retirement because we are, I'm still working with Bain Capital as an advisor on the many situations and still have a great affinity for all the partners at the firm and, and want them to succeed. And I'm helping them in any way I can. I love working with the Celtics on the matters we just talked about and Atalanta. And we have a fantastic team, both at the Celtics and, and Atalanta, which makes it really easy. And then at the same time, you know, I'm building a family office. I have four children and they are working in the family office and the family office is working on things that are very synergistic with what we do, growth capital in biotech space, a lot of interesting areas. So we've built a, a fairly large presence and probably done already 57 direct biotech deals. We've invested in anchors in, in two or three biotech funds that are very successful. We're looking at AI and space and biotech and fintech as growth areas. And we like to coach and build entrepreneurs. And the great thing about the family office situation is we have an infinite time frame. It's a private equity has a very long time frame. We have even a longer time frame. So we can afford to invest and build in small companies and make them into large companies and do that over a, a very, very large time frame. And we have no pressure to sell those companies or, or take them public. And so we can fund them for the long term. So I, I, in summary, I'd say I have very exciting days and I'm going to have to figure out how to draw a line or, or draw some boxes and lines around these so I can actually play some golf and take some vacation. But it's been a world since uh, acquiring Atalanta and becoming a senior advisor to, to Bain Capital. It's been a lot of fun. Yeah, that doesn't sound like retirement. <laughs> that's for sure. But that's amazing. That's awesome. Yeah, I think Adam Silver said to the Wall Street Journal, <laughs> something like, you know, retirement and don't, don't fit in the same sentence. So eventually it'll, it'll have to come. But I'm feeling good right now. And I feel like the things I've been able to learn at the Celtics and Atalanta and Bain Capital can really, you know, help a lot of other young people and help businesses. And I'm going to focus on that as long as I'm, you know, hell with the enable. And when I'm not, I'll, I'll slow down. I'll figure out when that time comes. Do it as long as you can. That's my general feeling about this type of stuff, especially if you enjoy it, which it seems like you do. So congratulations on all the success you've had. And thank you for doing this, Steve. I really appreciate it. I think people are going to learn a lot. This was a lot of fun. I learned a lot. And I think you obviously have a wealth of knowledge across a bunch of different industries and stuff like that. And it's fun to hear you applying that to different situations, whether it's in sports or biotech or your family office or whatever it is. It's really cool to hear your story. Well, thanks very much, Joe. And good luck and go Celtics and Forza Atalanta. <laughs> <laughs>